Assalamu alaikum. Have you ever thought about doing a degree in sports science or even gaining a PhD in cycling? Well, we have someone on doing just that. Rob is a PhD student at Loughborough University. He's researching intermittent exercise in cyclists. Although he won't admit it, he is at the cutting edge of research currently in the world of exercise physiology. We break up this episode into two parts. You can imagine Rob is a very smart guy, so I thought there is no one better to explain all things related to the pro peloton. So sit back and enjoy as Rob does a super deep dive into all things cycling. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Gapped Podcast. Rob, how you doing? Very good, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. Uh, so Rob, you are a PhD student at Loughborough University. Uh, you've been cycling for a long time. In fact, uh, Rob, uh, I was uh, doing some stalking. Um, <laughs> I went on the British Cycling website and uh, typed in your name. And you've been doing well for yourself. You, you haven't raced in a long time, it doesn't. Uh, it seems like. But um, you know, you, you were doing uh, first res- first uh, first place in a in a race back in 2018. I think that might have even been Cat Two. So uh, yeah, yeah. No, I've been racing a long time, but yeah, no, I'm back issues have helped me back recently, but. Yeah, no, I, pre- I appreciate the BC stalk today, I appreciate it. I don't, don't think I've been stalked for a while with current lack of race results, but yeah, I appreciate someone stalking on a page there on BC. So. <laughs> Good on you. So uh, you want to introduce yourself, Rob, uh, give a bit of background into what kind of riding you do, uh, who you are, and what you study and things like that? Yeah, so kind of got, so I'm 25 now, I'm a final year PhD student, like you said. And then, uh, yeah, got into cycling quite young. Parents met through cycling and we've been a massive cycling family or raced at some part in our lives. And yeah, sort of started out as a mountain bike racer, just going to the local trail centre with my dad every weekend. Uh, that developed into racing and then from about the age of 12 till now, just, yeah, full seasons of racing. Um, so yeah, been doing that a long time. Um, but at the same time now, kind of you're at that age where kind of looking to cement your career and for me that's hopefully going to be within the world of cycling um some reason or another kind of been pursuing that um probably from about 20 halfway through my degree um and yeah that's kind of me as a general overview i think so yeah very quickly rob this wasn't the aim of the podcast but it seems like a lot of children uh, get into either mountain biking, BMXing, and even when we were at um, the National Centre um, during the scholarship, they were talking about getting your kids or getting kids into BMXing before any other uh, discipline. And it's interesting that you got into mountain biking. Is it is it the same reason? Is it for the skills or? Um, well, I don't think my parents planned out my cycling oh, career that, that that well, to be honest. Um, but. Yeah, no, I think, uh, yeah, so I think generally a good reason to start kids off-road, like mountain bike or BMX, it's just, just safety, being away from roads, I think is one reason for that. Um, you don't want young kids perhaps riding on the roads too much. Um, but yeah, uh, no, I don't know, I just, they tried to get me into road cycling, I didn't like it, I just oh. like getting really and doing jumps as a youngster, I think that's why I got into it. And, yeah, there are no BMX tracks near me, so that wasn't an option. So, um, so did you pick up skills um, for the road? Because um, obviously you turned out to be a road rider in the end. So. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah. 
Um, yeah, I picked up a lot of skills. Hilariously, I'm one of the least naturally talented uh, bike handlers in the world. So when I moved over to road racing, yeah, a lot of people said, oh, you're out and bike, you should be able to call it better. But, yeah, sadly, that's not, I can track stand well, I can do a lot of tricks, but I can corner it in the crit very well, sadly, still. So, so yeah, you still and me both, mate. You and me both with it. Yeah, <laughs> Uh, so uh, you're a PhD student. What, what are you studying currently? Uh, give a brief, over, give the, uh, you know, uh, layman answer, and then also give the t very technical answer as well, because uh, what you're studying is incredible, and it could be uh, almost uh, career changing. Really, it could, it could even change the face of pro cycling as we see it. Um, <laughs> oh, so. I wouldn't bet too much money on that. No, maybe, you never know. You never know. Um, so yeah, kind of uh, one thing I didn't realize about PhDs not too many years before I started one was you're not kind of studying kind of like you are at undergrad or at school, you, you're basically just like researching. Um, and so you basically you'll just write a thesis which will just contain a couple of your research um, papers essentially that you get published. And so for me, that all my papers are going to be in the area of um kind of intermittent exercise around cycling um, and so basically it's kind of all based around the critical power and W prime model which yeah not unless you're really hardcore into cycling physiology you probably won't have heard of which is fine but essentially your critical power is kind of very similar to like your threshold that's kind of like the highest aerobic power you can sustain around 40 minutes then kind of like above that you kind of have your matches like that anaerobic tank you can burn, and that's how we, what we refer to as W prime. And then once you go back under that critical power, you can kind of recover some of those matches and get them back later in the race. And what I'm investigating is kind of how you burn those matches, how you recover those matches, and uh, a little bit of modelling that as well. Um, so yeah, it could hopefully potentially be used in the World Tour one day, but we'll never know well we will know eventually i'll find out if it ever does but yeah <laughs> can't tell yet so are you, are you the only one studying this right now or is there people across the country uh, even the world studying it? uh well actually there's, there's quite a large quite a lot of us in Loughborough now doing it okay. i think i was the first but um we've got a new phd student as well burn studying it and then um another guy jonah drake who's studying it but he's um He's technically within the maths department. He's doing a lot more hardcore maths than I am with it. A lot, lot of like big data, savvy modeling it, where I'm trying to answer more physiological questions. Essentially, um, I'm more a physiologist, and Jonah's 100% maths student. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting how it all comes together, really. Maths, physiology, uh, yeah, all of it. <laughs> yeah, it's mental. Um, so uh, we got you on because uh, there might be people out there right now listening who are potentially looking into either studying in the future or might be already studying and thinking about doing a PhD in physiology or similar and uh, we're going to go into the pathway uh, about it all. So uh, why, would, why would someone who might be into cycling study physiology in, in university? Um, so yeah, kind of I think the more... Like if you're looking at it as kind of what degree to study at undergraduate would be your like yeah quite commonly studied sports science degree then a master's level we have sport physiology offer here at Loughborough which I think has become a joint physiology and nutrition one but then kind of generally it'll be after your masters you start looking at PhDs 
kind of um, you look at what kind of area you want to study in, and you will kind of think how that PhD sort of sets you up. But you kind of have to at least start with some sort of sports science degree. So for me, um, I kind of chose to do maths and sports science because, as as you know, finding a job in elite sport is very, very, very hard, Absolutely. and you um, probably don't want to. Like for me, definitely what my parents advised me of what I think was wise, wise advice: don't, don't bank on a, a being a pro cyclist <laughs> or a, a being a pro cyclist and b being a pro cycling coach. But so I, I don't think I ever chased pro cyclists too aggressively. Yeah. But I think now I am chasing a pro cycling coach quite aggressively. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the reason I did math and sports science was I wanted that backup that I could easily go into. Like a different, high-paying job within um, maths. Which, no offence to people with maths degrees, have got high-paying job. I, I don't think it's as hard as getting a job in the world tour. So that'd be my quick one to do that. But yeah. <laughs> nah, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, that, that's some wise wise advice from your parents, and probably worth uh, repeating. Don't don't chase the pro dream too much. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. There are probably yeah. we were speaking about this Rob uh, only a few weeks ago. There's probably if you if you really break it down, there's probably about only 200, maybe 300 maximum people in the whole world earning more than, I don't know, what, 40k, 50k uh, in terms of pro riders. There's there's probably not yeah. many more people than that, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's great. that's yeah, that ballpark, maybe a few more, but uh, yeah. yeah, not a whole lot more. Than yeah, that. yeah, 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 and that's the whole world, so... Uh, it's, it's the a lot of people trying to do it as well. Yeah, awful. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And um, we all think it's the dream, Rob, but uh, I'm sure yeah. they'll tell you it's not quite quite like that with the crashes and whatnot. So no, no, there's harsh harsh realities, and you only see the winners. You only see the winners on TV. They yeah, see yeah, the people yeah. who don't make it. Sadly, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, if if someone's not into um, going into the sports physiology. Um, pathway uh, initially can they go through other pathways to perhaps study cycling in other facets and ways um i guess yeah so it's kind of like studying cycling. like there's a lot of um jobs within the world tour you've got your mechanics your psychologists nutritionists your coaches and um especially coaches i think yeah henry said it when he came on the podcast it's a cross between an art and a science and um I think generally if you look at kind of previously, I think you could potentially say um, they've been more artists than scientists, yeah. coaches, uh, but potentially now you look at like Big Atch's coach, he's been Robert, I would argue they used to be doctors. Um. <laughs> then, yeah, well, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Blood transfusions. Well, obviously, and... um, obviously uh, yeah, Lance, Lance's real coach, uh, Mr. Dr. Ferrari, yes. um, I think they denied he was his coach, but I'm fairly convinced he was his coach. Um, but yeah, no, I'd say generally potentially more successful coaches have been um, proper scientists, whether that be medical doctors, or um, you can be a medical doctor and not be a doping coach as well, I feel. Um, but yeah, generally, especially within the world, tour coaches are coming from a, a lot more coming from a scientific background from my from my LinkedIn stalking um, yeah, yeah. and so so yeah 
I think the whole world of elite sport is becoming a lot more scientific as more money goes into it. I think that's across the whole of elite sport. Like you look at football, how much money there is there now. Like they're paying FC coaches about half a million wow. a year, okay. and like you, that, that's not just some guy you find down the gym. That's that's a man who knows an awful lot about yeah. strength training, physiology, and mathematics. So, so yeah, um, it is kind of moving that way that you have to have those qualifications to work within the World Tour. Obviously, there are a lot of teams where coaches are like ex-riders or yeah. who work their way up the ranks with just being successful coaches, just yeah. get moved up. Because, um, yeah, even though it is becoming more professional, I think there's um, it's still who knows who, you networking a lot. It's not, not uh, it's still not 100% professional. It's still a long, long way off. It's yeah, yeah. professional. It's not things like a P like a top FTSE 100 company for sure, so yeah. That's, uh, that's very interesting. So you've touched on like some of the careers and job opportunities afterwards, but um, if, if you don't make it within cycling, because cycling is actually very, very small, um, what other opportunities are there? So you mentioned there's, you can get into other sports, but is it, is it easy to do that? So people from rugby and whatnot come into cycling, but is it easy to go in from cycling into other sports? I think, yeah, it depends who you are. Like, for me, I think it, it was probably cycling or bus. I didn't have a great amount of knowledge or interest in other sports, to be fair. But my housemate, who's, my housemate who's doing a very similar PhD to me, he started out as a squash player, and his PhD is all around physiology. And for him, he's got interests in other sports, like athletics. I think he, he can happily move into other sports. But for me personally... Um, I don't think I have the knowledge or the interest in to work in an elite sports setting, really, in too many sports outside of cycling. Um, I don't see a career in football for myself or anything like that. Um, but yeah, for sure, you can move around sports if you want to. For me, I don't, think, I don't see it happening. I think cycling is the only one I ever see myself working in. And I guess my other option, would, the most classic option that people would expect me to go down, would just to be a lecturer after if a pro cycling didn't work out for me, um, yeah. which is quite likely, because um, it's very competitive. But if not, I kind of, I've still kind of half got a maths degree as well. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, I'd say for someone who's 25, I'd say my range of options is, is quite wide of what yeah, I could be doing in five years' time. So, so, yeah. But I think I'm happy with that. Yeah, I'd yeah. say my hard my hard advice to anyone looking to study like physiology cycling or sport would be do a mixed degree like math and sports science to potentially leave leave more doors open to yourself as well um that's the advice i'd give there so yeah don't elite sport i'd always say don't pursue it too aggressively yeah. because it's very very competitive so yeah absolutely so uh rob um you know, uh, getting a degree now is is thirty grand, forty grand, um, yeah. potentially more when you include accommodation and all the rest of it. Uh, is there opportunity to access funding, whether it's undergrad or then your PhD or similar? Um, well, yeah, obviously undergrad, you kind of got student um, student loans from the government. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel make it. Uh, plausible for pretty much everyone to be able to get through uni um, and then yeah after that it gets a lot more complicated um, so my 
the, I wasn't planning to do a PhD. It wasn't part of my plan at all. I was probably planning on doing a master's. And for that, I would have needed financial assistance from my parents yeah. because the loan wouldn't have come and made it financially stable. It was a hard sell. I can't lie, getting my parents to pay for a master's yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And just is quite out of the blue the way the PhD got offered to me. Yeah. I just got phoned up and the right people kind of wanted me to stay around in Loughborough for a while, which was very fortunate for me. And I was I was lucky. I was I extremely lucky and I always say I was extremely lucky that I got offered a funded PhD. Oh brilliant. Paid, paid my wage. Um like just a basic wage of fifteen thousand a year just to survive and then um just obviously yeah fund the study as well. Um, so yeah, I got 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 enough to survive, which incredibly lucky for me because it's very hard. When I actually do a PhD, you have to take out a lot of loans, getting to a lot of debt, and if you don't come from a wealthy background, like I, I'd have never been able to ask my parents for that kind of money. Yeah. Why I wouldn't have felt comfortable getting into that sort of debt. Yeah, yeah. Um, so unless the funded PhD came up, I, I wouldn't have been able to do that. I don't think. So right? is there not like a I'm not saying a pot of money, but like, are there no ways, grants, for example, or is that something very rare? It's, yeah, yeah, getting PhD funding in, in the world of elite sports quite hard, like yeah. very, very difficult, because um, like obviously, say, you want, say you're researching coronavirus and you're a top, and you've got a degree from natural sciences from Cambridge, there's going to be lots of posting and options, but it's not like INEOS have got, hundred grand to throw out all the time yeah. to fund some new little research project and they don't do it in physiology maybe they do slightly more in aerodynamics I think but yeah not in a not in physiology or that I know of at all um, and so kind of the general way to get funding would be for a university or generally companies might want to fund research but then your whole PhD can be quite weird so kind of common common ones in the theme of elite sport of that set people up to go in elite sport would kind of be um, like product, like companies wanting to test out their nutrition products. So there's okay. quite a lot of people kind of within my sort of research, within kind of researching the same thing, have similar supervisors who are like researching supplements and stuff like that. And so their whole PhDs are essentially just seeing the effects of the supplement, which can set you up can give you a relevant PhD for elite sport, but at the same time, maybe not what you dream of researching as well. You yeah. kind of have to research what the company tells you, as opposed to having the freedom you'd have. If you had that massive pot of money where you could just do a PhD, pick your supervisor, and yeah, and obviously those funded ones are going to be a lot more competitive as well. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Understood. Um, so you're like at Loughborough University, um, perhaps the best uni in the country to do sports science. Um, it definitely has that reputation anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll back us up. I reckon we're good. I reckon yeah. we're good. Yeah, so what other... The world rankings like us as well. So I'll, right, I'll, I'll have to sell Loughborough Uni there. <laughs> so um, b before we go into Loughborough and what that's about, just uh, you, you're probably the best person to ask. Are there any other cutting edge research going on right now that... Uh, we should hear here here first. You know what I mean. Um, well, oh, that's a hard one to say. Um, I don't think people. Uh, anything that me, anything that interests you, then Rob. Anything that interests me. That that's um, going on around you, and you're like, oh, that, that's cool. I want to know what comes out of that one. 
Yeah, well, maybe I'll say this to be nice, but I think it is genuinely interesting. I think your listeners are interested in it as well. My housemate is doing very similar PhD, and kind of one of the questions he's researching, this really shows you how niche PhD research can be, is the uh, physiological responses of when people do a two-hour ride versus a five-hour ride. And so he's taken a whole lot of muscle biopsy. So it's basically the question he's trying to answer is... um, for kind of like weekend warriors yeah who maybe do like no training for up like average 10 hours a week and it might be two five hour rides at the weekend well who, who's doing that what weekend warriors doing that <laughs> the weekend warriors doing like what a two three hour cafe ride on the weekend and that's that's them done <laughs> who's doing 10 hours as a cat as a weekend warrior Damn, I, I I'm behind. My, my dad used to i don't know maybe not maybe not maybe that's your elite weekend warrior yeah maybe sure. maybe <laughs> yeah go on um, yeah, he's basically saying, like, um, yeah, kind of, do you get similar responses to two hours of endurance training as five hours of endurance okay. training? And uh, he's not, he's not told me any answers yet. But okay. My my presumption would be no. I think the five hours would give significantly more stimulus. But essentially, what he's looking at is just how just is quite hard hardcore biochemistry to be fair, and looking at the markers within the muscle um to see what the differences are and stuff around that i find that one interesting to see that's incredible um, yeah, if doing those extra doing a five-hour ride gives you much better stimulus than a two-hour ride and if so what is it improving and like the reason for that so yeah so, yeah i definitely want to know the answer to that one as well that's that's incredible research yeah, yeah so. i think uh although not not what i actually know too much about there's one uh i've been talking to him this week so i've not i've not really researched it so much but there's one bloke who's uh, he's got some sort of weird seaweed product. He's seen some quite impressive performance gains there. Okay. I can't even remember what it's totally called. Okay. Can you ship I me think, a bag? I, I, no, I've been asking him for a bag as well because if his, if his, if his preliminary team is to be believed, there's some, some potent stuff in the, in the seaweed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Brilliant. Brilliant. So, um, Loughborough Uni then. Um, what, what makes it. Uh, the standout uni here in uh, here in the UK. Yeah, I was being a bit tongue in cheek saying it's the best. No, nah, come on, like so what you no, guys were explaining no. a few weeks ago. That that that's a brilliant project. Like you only hear about that in America, really, in terms of the whole package. You know what I mean? In terms of cycling, and I'm sure it's with other sports as well. Yeah, uh, what they can offer. So so what Loughborough do essentially they mark themselves as the number one sports uni, and sometimes that that gets blended between being the the university with the best athletes who are winning books, which is like the inter-university sport competitions. It's like winning that every year, having the best athletes there, and kind of being the best place for sports science to go as a student, which could be two very different things and aren't actually that interconnected. Obviously, a lot of the athletes do study sports science because that's what interests them. Um, but essentially they kind of build this brand from having those two things and always making sure they win books and being best sporting uni by winning across a range of different sports and then also fighting to be number one in world and UK rankings for sports science degrees and that's a massive part of their marketing and they kind of feed off each other I feel that's a very that's a very it's a very well thought out stra- marketing strategy of the university here and so essentially what they do is they put a lot of money and effort into support staff and coaches within 
a select few performance sport. I don't know how many there are now. I think it must be about 13, 14. And it's basically all the ones that have lots of books points. Yeah. So it's kind of like Great Britain trying to make sure they win the Olympics. They'll give cycling lots of money. They'll give swimming and athletics lots of money because that's where all the medals are sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like that, but just on a university level. And so basically um, cycling's now become a performance sport at Loughborough University. And so, um, so yeah, we have a guy who came in, I think it was three or four years ago now, Dave Nichols, who was a world tour coach with Dimension Data, who now runs a cycling program here. And below him, there's you got like physios, you got S and C, you got nutrition. And kind of the idea is he's kind of like an academy to help riders progress from university on to potentially having pro contracts um, and kind of becoming. I think the ultimate goal would potentially to rival the GB Under 23 Academy. Um, definitely, I think it's already a better option than like just randomly going abroad to like Belgium and just joining a random team up there because there is very, very good support and there always has been very good support within the Loughborough Cycling Academy. Um, and that's essentially what it's trying to do. And it'll be the same with all the other sports. They'll essentially be sports that A, want to win books but be be a good alternative to other options young athletes might have who choose not to study university but want to pursue the career in sport so so yeah oh, that's brilliant so what what might like a week look like for uh, a cyclist um, who studies at Loughborough um, yeah so essentially they'll just have be given a, a Loughborough uni coach so up until this year I was one of, we only had volunteer coaches below Dave, but now they've got a bit more funding with the programme. And so kind of, yeah, three of us coaches left and they're able to bring in people that they can pay full time in the roles. And obviously me doing a PhD, I wasn't able to apply for that role. So sadly I have to give up part of my coaching there. Um, but essentially, um, yeah, for the athletes, they'll just be set training on something similar to training peaks we use cycling analytics here instead and um, through that yeah they'll just be prescribed their training and then on Wednesday every student will have no timetable lectures they'll just go to races oh, or um, potentially occasionally there'll be uh, training sessions on and uh, yeah then, then two weekly gym sessions will also be part of the cycling oh, really cool. so, so yeah it's quite a lot quite a lot of support Essentially, for the level of athletes we have, I don't like. Yeah, it's kind of. I don't think even like concert teams would be offering S and C and a lot of the things we have. So, so yeah, it's it's a really good setup. And that's um, part of the. You're not paying extra for that stuff, are you? It's just the. No, no, no. Like you're then. It's um yeah, just like if you're part of a football team at a yeah. uni, you get all that all that for free, and uh yeah, potentially you save money because there's scholarships as well. Although Loughborough's model of kind of attracting people is having all the support services like S and C, yeah. a lot of other places would offer large financial scholarships. So like Nottingham, for example, um, the way they do it, the way they try and win books is just by recruiting the best people with largest financial scholarships. Okay. With the Loughborough, which will, their model is generally, we offer you all this, which is worth a lot more, and but we won't give you as much of a financial scholarship so 
Um, yeah, so if you are looking, you kind of have to look look around, see what best suits you. Because if you already have a great coach, I already have a very nice setup, you, you might be better choosing the financial scholarship. But if you're kind of new, you don't know what you're doing, you haven't currently found a great coach, then uh, Lufkin might be the better option. So, so yeah. So if you're not, um, say, a very good uh, uh, cyclist, when I say very good, I mean like in terms of your numbers, you're not pursuing uh, the pro cycling side, would you still yeah. go for Loughborough? Um, would, would that still make sense, or would you then uh, look elsewhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so if you're not if you're not pursuing pro cycling, um, yeah. then like kind of well, the Loughborough cycling company now, when it first started, when I was part of it, it wasn't very competitive to get on it as an athlete, like if you were just a standard good second cap who could maybe win a regional A, you'd probably be on. But now it's getting a lot more kind of competitive. You'd have to be a very either a very good track or time trial rider, where, which is where the books points are, or like a, a rider sort of aiming for top tens in Prem. So it's like the level's gone up. So kind of now if you're just that second cap level cyclist, you probably wouldn't get any support here. Oh, wow. Whereas so... you might. Even if you're Cat 2, you're not going to get, well, a level. No, most Cat 2s won't get any support here now. Apart from on um, Max, kind of just voluntarily runs kind of a support system for lower lower level riders. You wouldn't get Dave helping you if you're just a random second Cat and the whole LCA. But you get get some support off Max wherever, if you're at like Bangor or something, like some some places would give you a sports scholarship just for being a second Cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's different to be an elite to be seen as an elite athlete here is very very hard now sadly, um, but yeah, as a community as like a grassroots cycling club we've got so many just obviously because Loughborough for seems this great place for sport we've got what's have about 150 members within our cycling club and oh, uh, yeah I'd be fair I imagine ours is probably the best club to just be a part of for a for a casual cyclist for sure yeah oh, brilliant uh, and we partly because we're a rural uni as well. I think it's harder for like London unis to really have as much of a cycling club because, yeah, it's harder to get out in the, in the lanes, as you well know. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But we got Regent's Park, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gets a lapse in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, just going back to you for a second. Um, so does your research and the research, the other PhD students and master's students, etc., uh, what you find out does that then trickle down to the coaches and then the athletes or is that done separately completely um, yeah so it's not like like once I finish my research it will just get published and like there's a million and one papers that will be relevant for coaches to read but they won't read them all um, I don't think anything I publish or any anything coming out of luck within the next 10 years is going to revolutionise training or nutrition, to be honest. Okay. I think it's always just that slow little thing that knowledge just gradually, generally, slowly improves. It's very rare you get even a 1% sort of come out from a research paper. Um, but yeah, it's just more adding more knowledge. And yeah, I'm sure all the coaches here will read like my research, which will be nice. Um but yeah, I don't think it will massively change or inform anyone's training. But generally, coaches within uh, Loughborough will be pretty academic and will be up to date on uh, on stuff. So yeah, there's really a lot of research. So yeah. Uh, so Rob, just to wrap up this part of the podcast, um, any advice to someone getting into it now? So they're undergrad, 
or even someone who's uh, a mature student, they're getting into physiology at university. Any advice? I just go after the opportunities. You got to get involved in sport to work in elite sport. If you even if you're top of the class, you have to be involved in applied sport. For me, the only reason I kind of got, I feel a lot of the reason I got the PhD was because I was involved in the applied region of sport and I was coaching. Um, and I started that by doing a unpaid placement year uh, within Loughborough Sport, just working as a physiologist, supporting the elite swimming team here. Um, and so if you do want to get into elite sport, do an undergraduate degree, you have to be working kind of in the applied side alongside that. So you just have to chase opportunities that come. And one reason to pick Loughborough as an undergrad is there are an awful lot of opportunities to get applied work within sport here. Um, I'm sure there are other universities as well, but I don't think I'd be where I am without having had those opportunities to get involved in applied sport here in Loughborough. Um, so yeah, I owe a lot to people who gave me those opportunities. So yeah, nice that'd be my bit of advice. So yeah. yeah, brilliant. That's brilliant, Rob. Thank you. Um, so we'll go on to the next part of the podcast now. So uh, we've got you on because you are an absolute boffin when it comes to all things professional uh, cycling related. Um, we're going to focus on the men's side, however. Um, I'm hoping yeah. Henrietta uh, plans to come on in a few weeks, actually. So, so she'll go through the women's side. So if we focus on the men's side and the men's pro peloton, uh, yeah. just yeah. off the bat, could you introduce the professional peloton to us? What, what are we talking about? So yeah, why the men's professional peloton in road cycling sort of talk about world tour sort of races, essentially races all over the world. Um, uh, is it really though? Well, yeah, I don't know, yeah, controversial, <laughs> controversial. Technically, I think there's world tour race, obviously, in every continent other than Antarctica. But no, no, it, North America doesn't have one anymore. Or no, no, Amer oh yeah, it doesn't. No, they lost. Of California. Yeah, yeah, that's right. North America does. Yeah. Does South America? I don't think they do. No, you're right, they don't. God, I don't think, yeah, Tour Colombia was never world tour. Africa does it. No, no, God, you call me out here, good and proper to <laughs> not all over the world. not all over the world. That's what I mean, like, Africa it's does very it. Very European sport. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's the UAE tour, which is. Uh, very interesting. Um, that normally kicks off the season now that Australia is out, aren't they? So Australia don't even have a uh, world. Well, but that's, I feel that's kind of still COVID kind of related. That's logistical. That's, but yeah, it's, it's, um, I, was, I was kind of trying to pick it up as a world sport, but yeah, in all honesty, it's not. It's, uh, this is what we're talking about, Robert. That, that, that's, that's what I had in my mind. And then speaking to you, Megan, Max, the other day, is, uh, in fact, it's a very small, very, very small sport. Um, only a very few handful of people make it. Um, and it's very European. Um, you know, it's, it's not even British, it's not even English, which is very rare for us uh, Brits who think the world revolves around us and we're the best at everything, even football, where we've never won a World Cup, but we still have hope that we're going to win the World Cup and whatnot. Uh, I'll call you out there, I'm <laughs> sure we've won a World Cup. Oh yeah, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> we haven't won a World Cup for a very long time, sorry. Yeah, yeah. But you know what I mean, like, we still have hope, we're going to the World Cup with all this hope and, like, we're not very good. Um, so, um, it's very interesting that cycling is very, very European and I'm only starting to yeah. understand it. 
um, a little bit. You know what I mean? Like we have riders from here who won't try to make it here. Um, whereas if you're a footballer, you're a cricketer, you're a rugby player, you make it here and then you've made it in the world. Whereas you leave here and you go to Europe to try and make it. So yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Yeah, that, yeah. You have to. You ain't getting many pro races in the UK. That's for sure. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, Tour of Britain is not World Tour either. No. Yeah, no World Tour races in Britain. We used to have London Cycle Classic. I don't know if that's on this year. I don't think it is. Okay. As a World Tour race, so that used to be World Tour at one point, I think. But yeah, no longer. Yeah, so. yeah. So it's a very let's let's start again. It's a very European sport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you built me up as a boffin today you knocked me right back down here yeah. <laughs> no it's good it's good it's good discussion it's good discussion yeah, yeah. Um, but there are races across the world right um, yeah 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 of course yeah. of course um, yeah not all world tour but yeah you've got your your point ones and your point twos dotted around like um, dot pros so so yeah lower level races everywhere but yeah the professional heartland of cycling is undoubtedly Europe and I, the UCI, which is the national governing body, is definitely trying to globalise it slightly. I feel like uptake's quite slow. And part of it is kind of because it's not like, obviously, like you've got the Premier League. They Most most players stay in Britain the whole season. And then they, like obviously the good ones, get to go Champions League a bit in Europe. But essentially, because it's all the top riders, it's hard to fly people around the world all the time you can't like it's hard enough just moving people around Europe but potentially a big reason why it's not being globalised more you can't have people racing in North America one week Europe the next then South America the next just because of the, the time zone like you, you kill people off sort of thing like there's only there's only there's all the same riders going to all the big races sort of thing like a football football pitch you can have yeah 22 people um play games all over the world have their own little leagues where they stay in their own, own countries own continents but yeah um, it's different in cycling all the top people uh, are the same places and you know in cyclocross when they have the World Cups in America because of basically all the race through in Belgium or Netherlands a lot of them don't like flying over to the US and so so people don't want to get involved in that racing because of the jet lag and stuff um, which hampers training and, and the rest of their season, therefore. So, yeah. That's super interesting because, again, like America, um, cycling's huge there, but they're not they're not part of the cycling makeup, really and truly, you know what I mean? Which is yeah, yeah. Which is strange as well. So, yeah. I just think the logistics and money isn't there for them to continually ship bikes and equipment around the country, or the world rather, as well, you know what I mean? It's not just the athletes, it's... It's everything that comes with them as well. So yeah, for sure. Because yeah, obviously mainland Europe is quite condensed. You can move people around quite easily. But like America, even even if you want to race nationally in America, if you want to go to all different states, you've got some long, long flights going on there. So so yeah, it was, it was hard enough for me as a young for getting my parents to take take me three hours for Wales, yet alone oh, wow. yeah, four yeah. hours from Texas to California or whatever. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, logistical issues. I feel that's part of the reason why it's made so European based, um, for sure. So, yeah. so there's how many teams? Um, how many professional teams? Um, so within the World Tour, 
Uh, there are 19 teams, so yeah. World War is kind of like the top fight men's cycling. And then below that, you've got your pro Conti teams. Yeah. Uh, currently 19, but I think there can be more. Um, so yeah, next year, I think there'll only be 18 teams eligible for the World Tour. And there's like um, that promotion and relegation thing, which we yeah, won't go yeah. into today, but... Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I know. I, yeah, I thought, I thought probably that's quite deep. I, yeah. I don't think hardly. I don't think many people outside of the world tour teams know what's going on there. But yeah, it's an interesting subplot. Yeah, sure. yeah. So, um, how many, so how many you, riders going? Sorry, gone. So you got yeah, your 19, 19 world tour teams. Currently, nineteen pro contour teams, um, and then below that, the other teams the UCI recognise the continental teams. But generally, the riders on there won't be getting paid full-time wages. A lot will just be paid nothing. Some will probably be paid quite a handsome amount. Um, but, um, yeah, not a lot. Very quantity teams. Uh, minimum wage is 31,000. Euros, is, isn't it? Oh, yeah, euros, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. A world tour, 40,000 euros. Um, but generally, you'll find on some of the pro quantity teams, although they might be getting paid 31,000 euros, they'll have to like pay some of their own expenses on the lower level teams. Um, so yeah, although some of those riders probably won't be bringing home 31,000. Uh, but equally on the world tour side, it's probably a bit more sunshine. I don't think there are many world tour riders earning only 40,000. I think generally a lot of them, to the vast, vast majority are at least double that, I'd imagine. So yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so how many riders are fielded during uh, a race from one team? Um, so yeah, generally in a grand tour it'll be eight, but most one day races are seven. Um, it used to be nine for the tour, uh, but they brought that down to eight. I think that was part of their effort to kind of stop Team Ineos dominating as much and just having their having their trains ride on the front all day. Yeah. Um, so they brought it down from nine to eight. Um, and yeah, I think it changes between races, but generally I think Grand Tours, teams are made up of eight, I think generally one day races like um, Lansan Romeo this weekend, seven, so yeah. And uh, so there can be sometimes two or perhaps even three races going on at once. Uh, how much, yeah. uh, how many riders does a team have in their squad, you could say, generally? Oh, oh Do I don't know this often. My head. I know there's a limit. Oh, there's a limit, is it? I th there's definitely a limit. I okay. think it's mid-30s how many they're allowed in their team. Um, so, yeah, I don't know the exact number, but I'm fairly sure it's mid-30s. Um, and then, yeah, obviously, a big issue at the moment has been that, uh, yeah, because there's been so many races, there's been a lot of illness going around in yeah. the Pro Peloton. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, essentially, there's not been enough riders to go to some teams go to some races so riders are start teams are starting without the full complement of riders at a race which is a bit embarrassing and they're having to throw in riders to races that that rider never had the plan to and yeah. yeah like we've discussed before van der Poel was never meant to go to san Remo. i think part of the reason he went or part of the teams the teams claiming the only reason he went was um was was because there was no one else left to race still got third still got third but we got third, so I don't quite believe them on that, but it's what, it's what they're saying. So. Yeah. So. so it's interesting. So just uh, you mentioned there's sometimes seven in a team, eight in a team. 
but only one rider wins a race. We don't ever say Ineos won the race. We'll say, um, I don't know, Egan Bernal or Tom Pidcock won the race. Why do cyclists need teammates? Yeah, so cyclists need teammates. There'll be a variety of roles um, within the team. So generally you have your leader and then below them you'll have domestiques kind of control the race. Generally there'll be like breakaways, people trying to go up the road. But say you've got Mark Cavendish in your team, you want it to all come back for a big sprint at the end, you'll need people to chase down those breaking away and kind of keep the peloton together. Uh, and then in a grand tour, you'll need a range of people to help pull on the flat for you on the flatter days, help you in the crosswinds, and then uh, your mountain domestics to help you in the hills. So, so yeah, kind of everyone, although cycling generally seen at lower levels, uh, maybe like myself, have raced that. It's quite an individual sport, but within the world tour, it's very, very much a team sport where they'll all work around one leader generally. I'm surprised, Rob, you ever mentioned uh, the most famous images when uh, you have a rider who goes back to the team car, stuffs oh. his back with like 10 bottles and it just looks like he's a turtle or something and <laughs> and he comes back up with a bunch of bottles for his teammates. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a key key domestic role. That's, that's, that's what I'd rather do. I'd rather go and get bottles than pull on the front of me. That sounds a lot more fun, but, but yeah. Ah, brilliant. So... Um, yeah, every 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 uh, rider needs a, a solid team. But then, uh, saying that, if you look at Pogacar's uh, first Tour de France win, you could argue he did it without a team. So I don't know. Yeah, um, the te- teams can get overhyped. Obviously, yeah. you can you, you have the best team, but if you don't have the best leader, you, you're going to get you're going to get done. Your team can lose it for you. I feel like say a large group does go up the road in echelon and they've not positioned you well then you can lose the tour for a poor team. But if if your leader just isn't isn't one of the top guys, just doesn't have the legs on the mountains or in the time trials, you're going to lose. For me, generally, it is still who's the best individual. Your team, generally, I find your team can lose you the race. They generally can't win it for someone substandard who doesn't deserve to win it. That's in, it's interesting you say that because Movistar get knocked every single season every single race for this tactic that tactic and they did this wrong and that wrong but in reality I, I've never I've never thought they've had a leader or even they've had the team to win but like you said they, they don't have the leader to win so it's no it's hard they get criticised a lot yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. some of their some of their moves are they, they, they've had some good ones I think Astana have had better better cock-ups to be fair, but more <laughs> yeah, absolutely definitely had some good ones. Um, yeah, generally, if you, you're going to like, like, it would be pretty hard for Ineos to not have won a lot of these times. And if you've just got the best rider, generally you're going to win. Yeah. It's hard to it's hard to beat the best rider. And yeah, for many years, Movistar just haven't had that best rider. And so they'll try lots of tactics that are quite aggressive. They'll attack at times when They'd have lost less time if they didn't attack, but what can they do? They'd have lost anyway if they just sat on and got dropped at the end as opposed to get attacking and then got getting dropped earlier. So, so yeah. Absolutely. So, um, what's the biggest race in cycling? Oh, that's a, undoubtedly, undoubtedly the Tour de France. 
for sure. So, so break it down. What, what is the Tour de France? So Tour de France, uh, it's a race in France, obviously, that starts uh, in July, three weeks long. And, um, yeah, variety really traverses quite a lot of France. Um, and then each step, 21 stages with two rest days in there. There'll be a mixture of sprint stages. And what's the sprint yeah. stage? So a sprint stage will be generally where it just finishes on a night. It'll be flat all day, and then all the bunch will come together, and about 180 so riders will sprint it out, all, all, all vying for position. And then generally a lot of crashes in one mile, one mile win, and then everyone will finish within about 10 seconds other than those who crashed, and that won't affect the general classification too much. You then kind of got breakaway days, medium mountain days, which medium mountain days would generally tend themselves towards the breakaway. And those will just be crazy. People fight to get in the breakaway all day. And then the bunch will try, the, try and bring them back for a reduced sprint or just the bunch will fight out a bunch. A bunch of, in the breakaway will fight out for the win. So a breakaway also, is um, a group of cyclists that go up from the main peloton, which is the main bunch of riders, so you might have ten, maybe fifteen, go up the road potentially. Yeah. Is yeah. Yeah. All right. Sweet. And then they go up the road, fight out for the win. Then one of them takes the win. You also have time trial stages where riders will be set off generally at a minute interval and race from start to finish, and then just that general the time they take to finish that stage is added on to the total general classification time. And then probably the stages that affect the Tour de France the most and other Grand Tours are the mountain stages where essentially they'll ride up massive. They'll again do about 180k, but they'll just finish at the top of a really big mountain. And that's where the massive time gaps are and where Gatcha will get his big time gaps generally. So, yeah. So, how does someone win the Tour de France overall? Because you might have someone who wins five stages, five sprint stages. Cavendish often wins four or five of the stages and uh, he never comes away the winner. Um, so how does yeah. it work? So it's all done on a cumulative time. So the time you take to finish all of the stages gets added up and then that's the general classification. So on those flatter sprint stages, there's generally no time between people and so no one makes much time on anyone. On the big mountain stages, obviously, there's there's quite big gaps because it's a lot harder to hold the wheel up a mountain as opposed to on the flat where you can get a lot of draft. So from all the stages, all the times get added up, and the person who takes the uh, shortest amount of time to ride around France is the winner. So yeah. Yeah. So it normally, I'm guessing, it normally suits a climb a person who's very good at climbing, someone yeah. who weighs not very much, maybe 60, 65, 70 absolutely tops kg. Yeah. Um, whereas a sprinter might win more stages, um, they can be 75, 80 kg, um, but they won't win the overall, which is basically dominating the mountains and getting the least amount of time going around. And um, yeah. so basically what you've described is the Tour de France, but I guess it's very similar to the Vuelta Espana and also the Giro d'Italia. Um, yeah. So they're the same thing, but for Italy and Spain. Yeah. Um, yeah, are there any other uh, Grand Tours, or is that, that's, that's the three of them, isn't it? So yeah, the three Grand Tours, and then after that, the next most important site uh, races that are consistent on the calendar are the five monuments. So this weekend, 
we've just had Milano San Remo, and then so that one's in Italy. Then it'll be a tour of Flanders and Belgium uh, coming up soon. Then after that, Paris-Roubaix in France. Uh, two weeks after that, and then, oh, then uh, also Il Lombardia as well um, is the final monument. God, missed one out there. Yeah, the age passed on the age uh, after Paris-Roubaix as well. Um, what so, makes yeah. these five a monument? Because there's something called a classic as well. And uh, what's the difference? Yeah, so all the monuments would be considered classics. The classics are just generally just big one-day races, essentially. But the monuments are kind of like the biggest ones of those classics. And uh, they're just steeped in cycling tradition all in Europe. No surprise there. Um, they're kind of always being considered the biggest races, the ones with the most depth history behind them um and yeah they're just revered a bit more they're all very long in distance and very tough um kind of like the hardest most iconic bike races they're all pretty 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 stunning beautiful locations uh well maybe not so much tour of france and paris bay uh but they're just icons of cycling like the tour de france is just always the most revered races to win one debate now around the monuments, Strade Bianca, um, which is probably becoming, I'd say, probably definitely probably getting more viewership and more attention than potentially some of the other two. Maybe I don't think I don't think interest in Lombardia is that high currently. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Strade Bianca is making a good name for itself to become a monument. Some people are referring it to as. What What makes that one so special? So that one's in Italy, isn't it? I think, yeah, a big thing about the monuments because they're all so different and so different to any other race. Strade Bianchi, kind of lock round, kind of gravel roads, like white Tuscan dirt roads and some really iconic races that have come out from there in the past few years. And uh, it's just so different in kind of how it looks. There's no, never been any pro racing on gravel much before that and to have that in the World Tour was a big change and gives that race its uniqueness, I feel, um, which is perhaps gives it, and kind of the, the place it finishes is also very beautiful. Sierra. Very European. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah. So, yeah. so it's, it's interesting though, you, 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 we're starting to see this little shift where it's going back to the old old days where, where they are riding on gravel more. We're seeing it a lot more in the Tour de France and, yeah. and some of these other races, aren't we? So, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where they take this, you know. Um, I think there'll be a lot more gravel racing. I think it is good. It's good for viewership, good financially for race organisers, and uh, but riders riders aren't a fan because obviously it can decide races. Like uh, a lot more crashes on the gravel. Yeah, I think generally riders and teams expecting to win the tour aren't happy because uh, yeah, your top rider can crash out a lot more easily. You can lose the tour like that. So. So yeah, that for first viewers, it's uh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's so. Especially the last uh, Paris Roubaix, which was a mud fest. Um, yeah, yeah, so that's, that's that the sort of thing we want to see for sure. So. Absolutely. So um, you mentioned, or we've mentioned, Pogacar as being perhaps the best cyclist currently. Um, yeah. You could argue there's others, Van der Poel, Van Aert, uh, yeah. etc. But uh, we don't see Pogacar. Well, I was about to say we don't see Pogacar winning every race, but. Well, we, we are seeing that, you know what I mean? <laughs> he's, he's almost winning every race, but um, explain how there are different riders for different jobs and different stages and different 
um, different races, basically. So, and the so fact that they can't race every single one as well. Yeah. So essentially, when it comes to like kind of winning races, what and sort of a one day sense, you'll have a different the kind of key key ones to look at as rider types to win races. You have your uh, your sprint specialists who are they they just come to a large large bunch sprint finish and then they're going to be the most powerful heaviest set rider and win there. Uh, another way to win races one day would be time trialists, so just people who win time trials. Your punchers will be people who win races up short hills. Um, and then your climbers, which is probably how you'd most classify the Gatchar as a climber, yeah. which is essentially... He, he, he can win everything now, can't he? So. I feel he's... Like no one, no one can match him on the climbs. Some people can match him in punches. A lot of people can beat him in time trials. It's, so. it's mental, Rob. Like only what three years ago, we had Chris Froome literally winning every single Tour de France. No one can yeah. touch him. But then he couldn't touch anyone else in any other race either. Um, but now we've got Van Aert, Van der. We got Van Aert winning flipping. Uh, what's the stage? Uh, Ven- yeah, Montvon two up uh, in the Tour de France. While he's also winning sprints, uh, we've got Vanderpool doing the same, winning up short, short, sharp climbs, winning and sprints. We've got Alaphilippe in the gr- uh, yellow jersey for long periods of time, while also doing the same. It's, it's, uh, we're entering a new and very exciting era, which is new era for sure. Yeah, it, it's kind of throwing the rule book uh, in the bin. You know what I mean, like. This discussion will might be very useless in a year's time, where you got everyone winning everything, and uh, it'll be like, yeah. "What's a sprinter? What's a climber? They, <laughs> they they do everything." You know what I mean? So, yeah, for sure, for sure. No, no, that's the thing. New top riders coming through, generally a lot younger as well. That's been the big, the other big thing. Um, just people reaching the top so much more quickly. And for me, the big reason for this this shift is just just knowledge around training, just the number of top scientific coaches out there. It's just really spreading and like these young guys are really buying into doing everything right, their aerodynamics, their nutrition and everything. And they've just got a lot better people supporting you at the lower levels now, younger yeah. levels as well. And so so yeah, the cream is rising to the top a lot quicker nowadays. So yeah. So let's go uh, switch it slightly. So uh, when you compare uh, cycling teams now to any other sport in the world, uh, looking at football, NFL, um, anything, tennis even, everything is generally based on the geography. So if you have Manchester United, you have Liverpool. If you have tennis, you have Wimbledon, and uh, etc. If you have NFL, you have, I don't know, uh, the Red Sox, but it's named after a certain state or city or whatever. Uh, cycling is very, very strange where you have Wanti Goubert, you have Lotto Soudal, you have Ineos, um, yeah. you have these random teams, EF Education first, uh, you have Quickstep, Alpha Vinyl. What, what's that about? Like, that's very, I don't think you see that on any other sport. I guess it's uh, getting into football a little bit, you have the uh, Red Bull. Um, Salzburg, yeah, 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 yeah. You have that. I guess it's creeping in, but um, in cycling, it's across the board. Um, you don't have, I don't know, London, 
cycling club. Oh, you do, but they're not a, <laughs> they they're not a professional. Team. Yeah, yeah, they're not a professional team. So, um, yeah, how, what's that about? Yeah, so I think it's just the way cycling works. So generally, the UCI set up the World Tour. It's not a big franchise like the NBA or UFC, um, kind of where everyone's sort of signed to that franchise as well. Um, basically, they just it's just a load of organisers run events for the UCI. And then the teams are basically, they're not constant, like the Red Sox or whatever will go on for hundreds of years. But kind of cycling is very dynamic and teams come and go very, very quickly, and it's the way the teams operate. Um, all the money for each team every year just comes through a couple of sponsors, and the vast proportion of that will be the headline sponsors, so like for Ineos, most of their money will be paid through the company Ineos for that year, and they'll likely just have very short-term deals, like a year or two, where that money will be paid, and then either those they keep paying that money year after year, or Dave Brailsford, who runs Team Ineos, has to go looking for a different sponsor. Um, so essentially, it's all based, all the money in cycling comes from sponsorship. Um, so yeah, I don't know too much about how the sports operate and run. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, then you've got the smaller sponsors, like obviously the bike sponsor will pay a lot, helmet sponsor, and smaller sponsors that aren't the name of the team, but are kind of on the jersey. And you will, it's, I feel that's part of the reason why cycling's not like football. Like, you'll be a Man, U, Man United supporter for life, potentially. But in cycling, it's harder to be a supporter of one team for life because a, a team's never really going to be called the same thing for more than 10 years. It's very rare that happens. And sometimes teams just totally disintegrate. Like, this year, we've seen uh, Dimension Data just totally go and all their yeah. staff, all the riders... Totally just uh, I, I, I thought they disappeared as well, but I think they've got a UCI Conti team now. I think. Yeah, I think I think the main team went. I, yeah. I believe it's just yeah. their development team left over sort of thing. So, so they they're, they're kind of gone. Really. Yeah, yeah, true, yeah. true. So it's, uh, like effectively, you're saying, Rob, that you could cough up enough money one day and just be Rob cycling, like Rob. Uh, put your well, yeah, that's, it, you know, that's what what's happened. So, yes, Sagan's old team, I think, it was Tinkoff Saxo. So, yes, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Tinkoff was just some mad rich Russian bloke who just set up his own cycling team. So, yeah. I think it was only costing him about 15, 20 mil a year when he was doing it. But I think, um, yeah, the budgets have gone up a bit more. So, you got yeah, you got yeah. you got a cough up about 30 mil if you want if you want Peter Sagan on your team and a team of that caliber nowadays, sadly. So, so yeah, me and you'll have to look around in the bank, Janaid, if you want to set something up. But yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm not contributing much. <laughs> cool, cool. Uh, so um, before we go on to the listener questions, I've just got one more question. Uh, so very, very briefly, if you had um, a youngster right now, um, say 16, 17, what's his pathway into the world tour? Uh, how would he go about it? Uh, so so different, so many different ways into okay. the world tour. It's not, yeah, yeah. it's not like football where you've got your academies. It's changing so much and so quickly. So generally for British cyclists, um, the, the most common route would be through the Great Britain Academy. You generally kind of be here, go on the academy for a few years, potentially ride Olympics at track, and then they go on to the world tour teams through there. But it's just changing. Now there's so much more money in it. 
teams are getting cleverer and they're recruiting riders from uh, junior races or under 23 races and you kind of do kind of have to race abroad as a junior and then you kind of get noticed hopefully and then kind of go on to a under 23 team or if you're really something special like Ben Tullet was um, go straight on to a pro conti or world tour team um, but it's very complex I'd say and now I'd say the GB route isn't as common people from the UK when they first go pro were generally ridden for one of the world tour development teams so like I think one of the first ones would have been James Shaw going to Lotto Sedal under 23 we're currently seeing a lot actually going to Crew Palmer FTJ like uh, Sam Watson Lewis Askey I think this is actually quite a big issue for GB the kind of getting good male riders on their track team now is they're losing them Quite that because of funding or quite young yeah but essentially these teams can just pay these youngsters quite a lot more like GB now financially the Great Britain cycling team now uh, financially uh, kind of quite overshadowed by like an Ineos or Jumbo Visma um, and essentially there's just so much more money there and they're looking to recruit riders younger and younger so they're just going to snap them up and kind of the equipment that Yumbo can offer. So if you're on Yumbo Visma or Group Armour team straight away, you'll just be on top of the range TT bikes, top of the range road bikes sort of thing. Yeah, they're just better funded. Um, they're just better funded setups, which makes things a lot more difficult. Other than that, there'll still be a lot of people just trying to go abroad to random small teams. I would quite aggressively uh, advise youngsters against this um, I, just because you're abroad you might get more races, more exciting races to do but I unless you're world tour level you're not you're not getting that contract I'd say if, if you're not already being picked up by like a big significant team out there like um, the Young Business Development Team or FTJ Development Team you're better just staying in the UK and be going on the Conti teams and hoping you get a ride at Tour of Yorkshire, Tour of Britain, can impose yourself there, kind of like Harry Tanfield did, and then he got his call up to the World Tour. But essentially, my advice is stay stay UK based unless you've got a big big team offer out there from like an Axion or a Seg or a, yeah, a big yeah. World Tour dub team. But yeah, yeah it's complex. There's lots of ways to go World Tour. So, so um, I'm obviously making my way up, Rob. I'm now cat free probably make it pro by uh, summer I imagine um, yeah <laughs> no but uh, in terms <laughs> just of just get the tour <laughs> yeah you'll see me in Ineos jersey you know um, but uh, oh, congrats, congrats for your podium as oh, well awesome. I saw that on social oh, media oh, come on um, yeah it's, it's, it's very interesting like I didn't see myself as a sprinter and now I'm, I'm sprinting for um, cat four sprints <laughs> which is uh, very interesting but just uh, looking at that ladder or that uh, system that we have in place domestically how, how does that work so cat four is where everyone starts off at and then yeah. you get um, 12 points and then you make it to cat three um, you yourself have made it to cat two um, by occurring another 40 points isn't it so yeah. how can you uh, climb the ladder per se that way um, if you were to do it uh, almost solo without um, the academy etc etc yeah my advice again uh, don't get caught up in the points um, doesn't matter if you're second cat first cat or elite 
Um, as long as you as long as you can get into prems, in my opinion, it doesn't matter. What's a prem? Pardon? What's a prem? Uh, a premier calendar, so one of the biggest uh, races in the UK. So like kind of basically just the National Road Race Series. Okay. Um, as long as you can get into those, which are part of the National Road Race Series, you got as good a chance as anyone. And if the points come and you move up to first cut or elite, fantastic. But if you don't, it doesn't really matter. You could technically still be a second cat, get into Ribble or Canyon, not score any points, and then just um, go and go and win two stages of Tour of Britain, then you'd oh, be yeah. taken up as World Tour. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. then you sense. could still be a second cat and go World Tour. Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, you'll get a bit more kudos from potentially some lower level teams. If, if you're just a great rider, it doesn't matter. Generally, if you are a great rider, you'll just naturally work your way up to elite. But you, there's no point just going around the country chasing easy points at low level crits just to move up to elite. It doesn't. Okay. It doesn't really help you. It might look good on Instagram or whatever, but just yeah, yeah. moving up. So you're just you're just throwing dirt on my my recent upgrade. Well, Is that what you're doing? Well, I'm not throwing dirt on you today. <laughs> I'm just. Yeah, they, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm very proud of you. I That's just don't nice. expect Ineos to come knocking and oh, you know, get get to. That's the doorbell now. I'm, I'm coming back, Rob. Yeah, yeah. Rails for the door, rails for the door. Yeah. <laughs> nah, understood. Completely understood. So it's it's about showing yourself on the bigger stage as opposed to yeah. working up the ladder, yeah. basically. So yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. All right, sweet. Rob, thanks for coming on. I've got. A few listener questions. Um, one was um, they're talking about bike equipment now uh, for the pros. Yeah. How is that different to say a bike myself or you would ride? Or is it different? Well, it doesn't have to be different. You can go out and buy all the stuff pro cyclists have um, if you've got eleven grand to spare, which sadly I don't. So, so yeah, um, yeah, no difference. Just kind of generally equipment. Obviously, as you pay less, slightly less less good yeah um for everything from your brakes generally just now robert i'm gonna argue uh, my canyon air road <laughs> from 2016 is better than the current one but that's a discussion uh, for another uh, time save the rim brake i'm putting out there save the rim brake i don't i, don't, I oh, i'm all for a rim brake to be fair yes. I'm, I'm not a big fan of discs i think they're a bit, bit heavy for my liking Absolutely. as a hill climber as a hill climber i'm never going to be uh, racing any discs so so yeah, well, in a hill climb, maybe yeah, in a road yeah. race, if I can get my money together. Um, but yeah, essentially, essentially, you can actually have a better bike if you want, because you're not kind of ECI constrained. Your time trial bikes can be a bit more aggressively set up if you're doing your CCT time trials, and you don't have to match the UCI uh, 6.8 kilo weight limit. Yeah. Um, but other than that, they'll just be they'll just be slightly faster, more aggressively set up, more aerodynamic more aerodynamic and lighter generally and less comfortable to ride because they're set up to be so aerodynamic I'd say is probably the key things but yeah okay. you can have the same bike if you want you yeah. can set your bike buy the same bike as Robert and set it up if you want but yeah, yeah cost you a lot of money yeah yeah absolutely um, it's not a cheap spot um, final question Rob we could be here all night answering this question but um, just keep it brief I guess um, if uh, if we were looking at a a professional, a world tour professional, what would we as amateurs take from them? Um, say training seven, eight, nine, ten hours a week. Obviously, they're training 30 hours a week. 
um, of they've got the nutrition, they're doing the strength training, they're doing all sorts. What should we take from that and what should we leave well alone as well? Um, yeah, the the big hours, obviously, you have to leave alone just because you can't, you can't do them. Um, the training you should take, I'd say, would be uh, the severe domain exercise training, so your, your hit sessions, really nailing. If you're on seven to eight hours a week, really nailing those hard sessions to like your um, six by three minutes, aiming to the highest average three minute power you can for all of those efforts, um, I think is good one, that kind of polarized training technique, which I think a lot of world tour riders kind of have now, where you just train hard, you really nail your efforts. I think warming up as well, take your warm-ups, doing them correctly for your big sessions like the pros do is key. And um, kind of, yeah, staying on top of your nutrition as well. So yeah, that'll be the big thing, is really nailing your intervals, really making sure you're doing them from a fresh state, going into your intervals well-rested with a good, clear mind and really hitting them well, putting your all into them, because that's what makes a big difference for me. So yeah. Gotcha, makes sense. Rob, I could talk to you all night about professional cycling and just all things cycling and I'm actually very glad you've agreed to come on again in the future, well regularly yeah. in fact, um, but yeah we should end it here Rob, otherwise uh, we'll be here till midnight, thank you for coming right. on Rob. Thank you very much no. for reaching Awesome, Cheers. thank you.